Hello, this is the Bunker Daily, called by me. Illegally. Alex Andreo, this is not the first time I've asked you before not to disrupt. You have no authority here, Andrew Harrison. I'm here in the proper capacity, Alex, and in the interest of a civilised podcast. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. Alex, once again, I will ask that you please cease this disruptive behaviour. It isn't the role of someone who, however kindly, volunteers to present a podcast to act as a proper presenter if they haven't so been appointed. That's against the law. (gasps) Has he gone? He's just kicked him out. Alex is gone. Unbelievable. Hello, this is Start Your Week, where we set out what's coming up in the forthcoming seven days. Alex has been readmitted from the waiting room uh, with <laughs> predictions about what to look out for. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hello. I'm all right, Andrew. It's a bit early. I'm bleary. <laughs> I will not stand for this behaviour. Um, first up, I have authority. First up, happening this week, the second Trump impeachment trial is going to begin on Tuesday. Illegally. Uh, illegally. <laughs> well, I, well if, you're a, if you're a Republican, you do not have authority. <laughs> So, or wouldn't it be great if they did it entirely on handforth rules? <laughs> In fact, one could make the argument that America has been governed on handforth rules yeah, for the past four years. Exactly. Somebody should also write a novel called The Hand for Thrills. Anyway, concentrate. So the Democrats have learned their lessons from last time. We're promised a much, much faster, shorter, video-heavy prosecution than the last one, which uh, was mm. repetitive and lengthy. There's not going to be many witnesses, including no Donald Trump. And it's more for the eyes of the American people rather than for Congress. But the likelihood of the Democrats getting 17 Republican votes they need is is pretty slim, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, you never know what might happen. These things tend to be quite dramatic. Just for our listeners, the very basics is so the Trump impeachment trial uh, starts on Tuesday. Trump is the first president to have been impeached twice. The charge against him is that of inciting violence against the government. When uh, the Capitol was stormed, but the Democrats want to go back much further than that and take evidence about him denying the result of the election since November and then trying to interfere in the Georgia result, I suspect they're going to um, rely heavily on that statement that he made before um, the events of the 6th, which was that if you don't fight like hell, we're, we're not going to have a country anymore. That will basically battle off against First Amendment rights, which are pretty much that you can say anything you want. Uh, the Democrats need 17 Republican senators to vote for them in order to get the uh, supermajority that they need. If Trump loses, he will be the first president to be convicted after being impeached. Um, That's never happened before. If he wins, he will probably have a magnificent springboard to launch his next uh, election bid. So a lot riding on this. By not impeaching and convicting Trump for this, the Republicans are surely playing with something very dangerous here, aren't they? Because if you don't impeach and convict for this, what do you impeach and convict for? I agree. Um, It makes the rules very, very elastic and almost meaningless. Um, But what you have to remember is that I don't think the Republicans have had a sufficient period to um, think what they are going to do about Trump. I suspect this 
is just coming too soon for them. They're still incredibly scared of the power he wields with his supporters. Uh, but it is dangerous, I agree. And, and it's dangerous politically as well as more generally speaking, because uh, you have to remember everyone is framing this in, in terms that, you know, an identity war, uh, this kind of polarization suits the Trump camp. But remember, they lost the last election, lost it significantly. It may appear to suit them, uh, you know, because they're basically shit posters. But they lost the the actual fight on it. They did lose the actual fight, but also more people voted for a Republican president presidential candidate than ever voted for one before. So it was a loss, but there is that huge asterisk next to it. Sure, but what? So what they want to do is they want to engineer a situation like uh, they had in the. 2016 election, where their base is fired up to vote, but the opposition is suppressed. They're not that bothered about voting. By persisting with this attitude, they may fire up their base to vote, but they also fire up the opposition to vote. Um, So I don't think it's a good strategy for them, but we'll see. You raised that quite interesting thing that, that it will be defended under First Amendment rights, saying that incitement to riot is freedom to speech. I mean, yeah. freedom of speech, as if there is no difference between the president and some person on your next door group complaining about the bins. I was listening over the weekend to the Slate Political Podcast, and they, they pointed out that, you know, we all know that there's no freedom to shout fire in a crowded theatre. Yeah. And America was a crowded theatre, and he shouted fire in it, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that there isn't a First Amendment defence for this because it is a clear incitement to to violence. Well, look, that's the argument. That's precisely the argument, uh, you know, but but I guess putting my legal hat on, um, you know, you have to anticipate what the argument will be for both sides. And the argument from the Republican side, or one of the arguments for the Republican side, is that this is the thin end of the wedge, that politicians make passionate speeches on the stump and use rhetoric that often inflames, um, and that if this is found to be an offence, there will be all sorts of trouble for all sorts of politicians, including Democrats in the future. It is interesting that this is now that the Democrats have managed to frame it as pretty much entirely within the confines of the Cold Civil War in the Republican Party. They've managed to box the Republican Party into its own contradictions. And it's very interesting to see the degree to which the Republicans are kind of in this Cold Civil War. They're censuring Liz Cheney for uh, her vote to impeach, defending Marjorie Taylor Greene, and yet Mitch McConnell is handling it all with kid gloves and really doesn't seem to uh, want anything, uh, you know, any kind of deep involvement at all. Is it good politics for the Democrats, forgetting about Trump, to simply you know, trap the Republicans within their own contradictions? Um, in some ways it is, in some ways it's not. Um, so it is politically useful for them to box them in like that and have them tearing strips out of each other. Even if two or three senators peel off, it will be big news because suddenly you will have these um, you know, senior Republican voices in the media saying, I think you should have been impeached. At the same time, it may be naive on a wider, in a wider sense, 
if they think that the mood is in the country is one that wants to move on from this, it may grate on people to keep uh, sort of, you know, scratching the scab off the wound and have something that will refresh those, you know, very heated arguments that have been going on for the last few years. People may just want the whole thing to go away. Well, speaking of scratching scabs on wounds, uh, <laughs> back home, the customs mess is going to get worse. Over the weekend, we saw really shocking reports in the freight industry. The goods passing through British ports have dropped by 68% since mm. the 31st of December. And the government says it does not recognise these figures. Unsurprisingly, the government doesn't recognise many things. These stories are now daily, aren't they, about small companies yeah. that are, are being driven to the brink of destruction people who supported Brexit finding out that Brexit doesn't support them. Do you expect them to reach a point where the government has to respond in some way? Yeah, I think they're already getting there, to be honest. Uh, Michael Gove, uh, just before the weekend, admitted for the first time that these are not teething problems, that there is a slightly more serious uh, issue going on. I mean, this was the Road Haulage Association. They're saying basically there was a 68% drop uh, in exports in January compared to last January. Now, some of that will be because companies in anticipation of Brexit will have overordered towards the end of last year, which is why we saw those big queues at the beginning of December, in order to build up uh, sort of stocks to uh, um, to anticipate the problems ahead. More worrying, perhaps, is that you know, about two-thirds of vehicles that come from the EU are going back empty because <laughs> there are no goods for them to return with. Richard Ballantyne, who's the chief executive of the British Ports Association, said those figures sound broadly in line with his impressions of the drop-off in traffic. There was a report on Friday that the median time truckers spent in lines at Ash Ashford was about 15 hours. That's quite a figure. A shipping company, DFDS, gave an interview saying they're having to turn away container ships because ports don't have the capacity. So even though volume is dramatically lower, the in and out valves to the country are jammed, meaning there is an external factor preventing volume from recovering. That's the real big worry, the real big issue. And as you know, the thing I've been banging on for years now on these podcasts is that haulage is not a curve. It's a tipping point. Margins are low in transporting goods. Delays and returning empty and long queues and more paperwork, they impact the bottom line of that haulage firm. And at some point, it will simply become unprofitable to operate in the UK. That's how this works. It won't work with a slow grind. At some point, enough firms will make the decision that the UK is not worth our while. And so people like Matt Chorley and Richard Tice can dismiss each segment of the economy that is suffering separately as somehow unworthy or elitist. You know, they might say, oh, mussels don't matter, oysters don't matter, cheese doesn't matter, meat doesn't matter, au pairs don't matter, musicians don't matter. But all those things taken together 
they are an avalanche that is building, which means that the British economy is close to stalling. And those who continue to claim this is a blip will be left with serious egg on their face, which is why I think we saw Michael Gove, a very, very sharp operator politically, begin to pivot at the weekend to saying that these are real problems that need looking at. Those are these truck drivers, eh? There is the competence question, such as the fact that we've only recruited 10,000 of the required 50,000 customs agents so far. You know, incompetence has become a, a hallmark of this government. But there's also the political one that the wheel could finally be turning. The refrain, I voted Brexit and I now regret it. Is that becoming the dominant tone, do you think? You're seeing it in places like the Express. Yeah. I mean, I think that was always going to be the case. We've predicted it many, many times um, that, you know, somewhere there is some ideal Brexit that would have been wonderful, but uh, this government fail, failed to deliver it. The worrying thing is that uh, the denial is preventing action from fixing the problems. So, because all these things need to be negotiated with the EU, all these problems need to be ironed out in negotiation, and in many cases, primary legislation needs to be passed to sort them. Unless the government admit fully upfront that there are problems that need sorting out, they prevent themselves from going back to the EU and saying, let's sit down again and talk about all these areas. And there was some reports this weekend in the Sunday Times, I think, that they're planning not to talk to the EU at all until April. I think that's a massive, massive mistake. It will be much better for them to be sorting out these things quietly behind the scene, one by one, rather than have some other cliff edge point. Because remember, for instance the extension they secured on data sharing runs out in April. So by saying we're not going to talk to the EU until April, they create another crunch point for themselves, another point uh, for companies to worry about, another point for people to overorder in order to anticipate shortages. And I, I don't think this is the right way to go. Before we move on, what do you expect to happen on the Northern Ireland border issue this week? Because it's been intensifying over the, since the Ursula von der Leyen vaccines carry on. The PSNI's chief constable has warned of a febrile atmosphere. EU and local officials had to be moved off border duties after threats. Yeah, uh, There's a campaign to get the NI protocol stri- scrapped altogether from the DUP and the Tory right. Um, this is going to worsen surely this week. Although I have to say that that plot is quite thick because some unions are now saying that, you know, those decisions by largely local DUP officials were uh, premature and that there wasn't, that basically the union wasn't saying the stuff they said was said. Um, We will see. Uh, The Northern Ireland Affairs Parliamentary Committee is meeting on Wednesday um, and I'm sure that hearing will be dominated by these events. So that's one to watch. Something you uh, wanted to point out this week is what Labour's saying about crony contracts. What's, ha- what's going to happen there? Yeah, so uh, Labour's done some research, which they're announcing today, Monday, 
um, they found that two billion worth of contracts in total have been uh, awarded to conservative friends, donors, and people who are somehow related to the party. That's more than 10% of the total contracts awarded. I mean, ultimately, I think the defense that access mattered in an emergency, and of course, people who had, you know, a, a, a mobile number for a minister could, you know, get their case heard ahead of anyone else and that they were dealing with something very urgent and speed was of the essence. So they had to go with the people and companies they knew. I think that holds for some time. The problem is you would expect processes to have developed as time went on. You know, COVID-19 is no longer an emergency. It's a fact of life. It has been with us for a year. The National Audit Office warned about these crony contracts in November, said there was insufficient safety um, checks in place. And since then, the amount that has gone to such contract has doubled. So the government cannot continue to claim that, oh, we were in a panic and therefore we went to the people we knew. It's now beginning to look like a policy. You know, the pattern is so strong that it's beginning to look like this is what they want to do. Now, the government can always point at the moment to the vaccination rollout and say, look what a terrific success this is. But I think Rachel Reeves made a, a, a very good point on the Today programme because she said that was done by the NHS. And so the Labour counterpoint will be, imagine how good test and trace could have been if instead of a private company that's buddies with the Conservative Party the money and resources for it had gone to local authorities for rolling it out. And so that becomes a double-edged sword for the for the Tories. Yeah, let's not run government by Matt Hancock's LinkedIn. Would be better, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. Before we go, a few shorter things to look out for. On the COVID front, Angela Merkel is going to discuss extending coronavirus curves with other EU leaders on Wednesday. The vaccine rollout has been a real mess for the, for the EU. Yeah. What are we going to see? Circling of the wagons? Um, maybe some states have already started to peel off. Hungary negotiating getting vaccine supplies from Russia and China. Czech Republic watching with interest. I think it will be a lively meeting. Alex Salmond may or may not appear at a Hollywood inquiry into the government's mishandling of sexual harassment claims against him. This one is going to be really radioactive because the, yeah. the SNP are having an incredibly torrid time. Sacking Joanna Cherry from the front bench, supposedly over gender recognition, but really everybody knows it's kind of a power struggle behind the scenes. It's not a good look in the run-up to the May elections that are part of that independent strategy, is it? Yeah, I'm not... I would put that everyone knows what the Joanna Cherry thing is about, I would put a caution on that because it might actually be about what it's about. Alex uh, Salmon, according to the Times on Sunday, is on the verge of ditching his appearance at the Holyrood Inquiry because documents haven't been disclosed that he thinks uh, should have been disclosed. I, I mean, I think it's a really hot affair, this, the idea that People conspired behind his back to encourage women to make allegations. But I think it should be seen through the filter of Me Too, which was massive at the time, okay? Because our focus at that moment was on believing victims, quite rightly. I mean, it's easy to claim in retrospect that there was some dark conspiracy, but had those allegations been proven, how would the SNP leadership 
have been seen, if it had done anything other than encourage women to come forward? Yeah. Well, now that it was a Scottish, so as usual, the, uh, the, the caveat is we're just telling you to pay attention. We're not making, ju- this is not, yeah. not Scots making judgment on Scotland. We're just saying, keep an eye on it. See what's going to happen. Interesting thing for nerds. It's going to be nerd Christmas this week. The public accounts committee on Monday, it, we may well get a final answer on whether PFI was ever a good idea and if it ever <laughs> delivered real taxpayer value. Yeah, so no, I, I doubt that will happen in <laughs> that we never get these sorts of answers from these, uh, from these committee reports. Uh, but it will be interesting to, to look at because, you know, I, I mean, obviously it's very easy to pick out stories where a light bulb costs two grand or something. But the truth is always somewhere in the middle with those things. So it, we, it will be interesting to see something that looks at PFI contracts over a longer period and over a broader range to see whether, you know, they did deliver as poor value as the Daily Mail would have you think. Yeah. And if you're the kind of person that listens to podcasts like this, you will probably be interested in the new Adam Curtis series, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Anything named after a Kylie tune is all right by me. It could either explain the world in its entirety right now or just provide another ton of conspiracist fuel for uh, people who like conspiracies. Are you a fan, Alex? Have you been watching it? Uh, no, I haven't watched it yet. It's on my list. Uh, I think it will do both, by the way, <laughs> because... If you believe that a, a, a documentary series can explain the world in its entirety, then you're probably quite close to believing conspiracies. <laughs> they thought that they thought they could make a documentary series that yeah. would explain reality in its entirety. One more but tiny they were wrong. Yeah. One more tiny thing to mention is the covert human intelligence sources bill. Yeah. So also known as spy cops is back in the Lords this week. Um, last time, the Lords introduced amendments to regulate the use of undercover informants, um, you know, suggesting such thing as that they shouldn't participate in murder and rape and curtailing the use of children as informants. You'd think that was uncontroversial, but no. Alex, thank you for joining me on this snowy morning. Listeners, remember there's a new daily every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. We'll be back with a full panel show tomorrow, Tuesday. Subscribe and you'll get them all automatically. And for a change, we're going to end with a poem from friend of the podcast, Ali Casserole. He didn't send it in. I just saw it on social media. I thought the listeners would enjoy it. So do not send in your poems. We're not saying send in your poems. But for now, please be silent as Alex Andreo reads Ali Casserole's Ode to Jackie Weaver. Ode to Jackie Weaver. Jackie Weaver, Jackie Weaver, wields a righteous gammon cleaver. Cross her and you'll surely pay, for Jackie has authority. Doughty, wry, with quiet steel, bringing bullies fast to heel, and though the councillors may shout, respect her, or she'll kick you out. Brian Tolver, where art thou? In the waiting room for now. Allard, you can join him too. You'll take charge. Oh dear, boo-hoo. Barry Burkhills for the chop. To the naughty step you pop. Jackie never bows to pressure. Queen of Handforth. Pride of Cheshire. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunk Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>